Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, April 24th, 2023. Uh, a year or two ago, we had the British writer, Simon, or Anglo-American writer, Simon Winchester on the show, talking about what was then his new book, Land, wonderful book, which dealt with land in a, the trend, the trends, the, 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 the change in the way we think about land from symbolic or mystical terms to transactional. He quotes Jean-Jacques Rousseau on the way in which land collectively or historically was thought of as being communally owned and the transactional nature. He dedicated the book to Chief Standing Bear, he wrote at the beginning of the book. In 1879, the U.S. government declared this Ponca chief to be a person under the law, but they still took away his lands. I thought of Winchester recently. Last week, we did a show with Tannis Rideout, a Canadian novelist who has a new book out. Uh, it's a novel about Polynesia, the sea between two shores. And it's a book about two worlds, two worlds in which uh, land was thought of differently, one in symbolic, magical, mystical terms, uh, and one in much more modern transactional ones. Uh, we are back. I'm thrilled with Simon Winchester today as a new book out, not about land, but about knowledge. And what's interesting, or what seems interesting to me um, when thinking about this new book, is you'd think that Winchester would present knowledge in the same way as he presents land, uh, knowledge being rational, transactional in the modern age, and magical and mystical in the traditional world, but he actually turns it upside down. So this new book is called Knowing What We Know, The Transmission of Knowledge from Ancient Wisdom to Modern Magic. It's a wonderful subtitle, and I'm thrilled that Simon is joining us from his home in magical Massachusetts in Southeast Berkshires. Uh, Simon, welcome and congratulations on the new book. Well, thank you very much. Lovely to see you again. Simon, I apologize for the rather long-winded introduction, but am I right? Are you turning the world or your world upside down? The traditional way, of course, of thinking about modernity is that we're the rational scientific ones and our ancients are the magical ones. But in your treatment of knowledge, you're suggesting that the reverse is actually true? Well, a good example of how the reverse is true came with the... Um remember the big tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami and Boxing Day 2004, the 26th of December, I shouldn't say Boxing Day to an American audience, um, killed quarter of a million people. I mean, probably the biggest catastrophe of both of our lifetimes. Um, the Andaman Islands in the basically to the east of India, west of Burma, um, string of islands occupied principally by migrants from India, so Hindus and Muslims alike. But there are some relatively uncontacted people like the Onge and the Jarawa, and they have no written language, or not so far as I know, anyway. But um, when the sea went out prior to the onslaught of the tsunami itself, 
those who were fishing or mending their nets or whatever they were doing that morning, they remembered songs from the past and they started singing them because deep in their psyches, rather like Aboriginals in Australia, they communicated down the years by poems and songs, which the elders taught to the youngsters and so on. And on this occasion, they said to each other, the sea's gone out, the message is run for the hills. And they ran, they dropped their nets and threw aside their boats and their oars and things and ran helter-skelter up into the mountains and all of them survived because ancient wisdom transmitted not printing or wireless or anything like that, ancient wisdom had told them what to do, whereas thousands of others in the Andaman Islands who more conventionally um, transmitted knowledge to one another, they had no idea what to do and they drowned. So there's an illustration of how the ancient wisdom was every bit as magical and useful as modern technology is. Coming back to land, as I said, you quoted Chief Standing Bear. He thinks of land or thought of land in ancestral terms. Uh, we moderns think of land in transactional terms. Are you suggesting that there's something magical about transaction and something wise about ancestral thinking? I'm slowly coming to that conclusion. I mean, maybe towards the end of this discussion, I, I would like to sort of end this with a bang in a way. I, my belief about whether modern technology is doing as much harm as it is to our brains, our psyches, as is conventionally believed, I'm not sure is true. Um, I mean, the conventional view is, I, I believe, I wonder if you'll agree with me, is that ever since, let us say, 1967, when the first electronic calculator was invented by Texas Instruments by a man with the lovely name of Jerry Merriman. He invented this thing which... Only in America, Simon, would you have a man called Merriman. He probably wasn't very merry, I'm guessing. Well, I, I think he was merry because of the amount of money he earned as a result of inventing this. Um, prior to that, I mean, the devices that we used to calculate, the abacus, I suppose, and the slide rule, we had to have some apprehension of mathematical principles in order to use both of those devices. But with this device, all you did was press buttons and then the answer came up seemingly magically. And from that moment on, a number of inventions, a cascade of them, spell checking, um, GPS, of course, Wikipedia, Google, all these things, made it unnecessary for us to know things, to think, to know basic principles. I mean, the other day I met, I was in Washington, D.C. and arranged to meet some friends for lunch. And one woman who had gone there from, it was a downtown D.C. restaurant, and she came from suburban Virginia, and like most people, using her GPS in her car to get to the restaurant, stepped out of the car and said to herself, I've completely lost my sense of direction. I used to know because I would see the sun and know if it was ahead of me, I'd be walking south. That was all completely gone. And the corollary to that is that perhaps, and this is what the conventional thinking is, is that we are losing our ability to think because it is so, it is not necessary to think because machines will do the thinking for us. I rather challenge that view for 
very different reasons. But nonetheless, what the modern inventions seem to be magical and what the effects on our, our brains will be is we'll see. But my view is that they do less damage than we might conventionally think they do. Simon, there was a Silicon Valley wit, if there's such a thing, or a, a wise man in Silicon Valley who remarked, I think it was Clark, maybe not so much a Silicon Valley guy, talking about new inventions, suggesting that every new invention seems like magic until it becomes, I guess, a reality, and then we just use it on a daily basis, like our iPhones or Wikipedia or Google. Is there some truth to that? And, and what does that say about magic itself and its place in our culture? Well, that's a, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And yes, they do. I mean, we all surely remember watching Steve Jobs unveil the iPhone and the thought of sliding your finger across a glass surface and a function, therefore, magically being performed was overwhelming to us. Um, it seemed just like... Uh, sawing a woman in half or pulling a rabbit out of a hat or doing these amazing tricks which had entertained us as children. And so, yes, magic, a sideshow in our youth, is now everywhere around us. We're, we're bathed in magic. And as you quite rightly say, magic becomes routine and nothing surely could be more magical than what's going on in the whole AI world. I mean, yeah, I want to get to chat GPT, but it occurs to me that What's surreal about the world we live in is it's a world of magic without magicians. You mentioned Steve Jobs. He was or is a magician. He no longer is with us. And perhaps that's why he was so loved, beloved, and also vilified. But are we missing the magician, Simon, in a world of magic, in the world of our information age, of Google, of open AI, of the internet? Well, yes. I mean, there's the famous T.S. Eliot poem, which I, which I quoted the very yeah. Beginning. You have it at the beginning of the book about are we losing knowledge in a world of information? I mean, is information surpassing data somehow? Is uh, it's all going weirdly pear shaped? And if if you if you want to talk about AI, I mean, that's upended everything. I mean, this book, which has just been published, it was. I think it must have been in February. This is now what um, April when the final chapter was being put in place, and we had OpenAI and ChatGPT three. And then, while I was writing that, or while I was proofreading those chapters, we got three point five, which was radically different. And then, so I managed to change the pages, thank God. And. Um, what we did was, uh, first of all, a friend of mine in San Francisco, a chap you may know. Um, Who's that? He's called, Dave, his last name is, they're both Chinese. I think it's David, it may be Tony, C-A-H-S-I-E-H. -H. Mm. And he was, he wanted to show me what um, uh, GPT-3, I think, could do with Shelley's Ozymandias. And, you know, I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless lakes of stone stand in the desert beside them. And he gave those two lines to the computer and said, OK, finish it as Shelley would have written. And the result is stunning. I mean, it's beautiful. It's 
illogical. It doesn't have that magical line, you know, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. But it is beautiful. So we then, um, and by that, then I think 3.5 was on the cards. And so I said to my editor, can I make some changes now in the script, which will annoy the typesetters because it changes the pagination quite radically of the book, the book to be. And so we took a paragraph of mine, a fairly conventional paragraph talking about the future of AI, gave it the first sentence and said to ChatGPT, okay, write it in the style of me. Well, I did exactly that. So you and I are thinking alike. I, I asked Chat. I, I just went to Chat GPT. Now this is Chat GPT four. Oh right. And I asked it, what would Simon Winchester say about the origins of knowledge? Uh, and it says Simon Winchester, an author and journalist, has written on a wide range of topics. Blah blah blah. While he has not specifically written on the origins of knowledge, he has touched on related topics such as the development of human language and communication. There is something magical about that, that this Absolutely machine magical. knows all about you, Simon. It's, it's extraordinary. And so I, I have no point in making the listeners wince in agony as they listen to my paragraph. And then it's, it's was very good to the point where my editor, Sarah Nelson, said, you know, I hate to say this, Simon. Well, I mean, she was joking, said it tongue-in-cheek. We may not need you for the next book. Um, well, we may not need her. She's the one who can be pushed out, Sarah Nelson. <laughs> well, I would, I'm talking to her a few minutes before this broadcast, and no, I do, will not have her pushed out by AI. I'll, I'll, I'll take the... Um, I'll take the You'll uh, take the hit? I'll take the hit, yes. But no, it is, it is extraordinary. And the Tom Friedman, I mean... Tom Friedman, I sometimes think that if bloviating was an Olympic sport, he'd win gold. But nonetheless, uh, two or three weeks ago, um, he wrote... He would close the... He, he, it would be... The, the sport would end with him because there would be no point in continuing it in, in bloviation. <laughs> he is Mr. Bloviate himself. Mr. Absolutely. Carl J. Pipesucker. And not only Mr. Bloviate, maybe this comes back to the transmission of knowledge. What I've never understood about someone like Friedman is how we can say one thing one week and the next thing another week, especially on the Middle East, and conveniently forget, forget. that he said the opposite of the week before. Well, I think if you're being paid $5 a word, you probably can forget. But no, it's, it, it, it's extraordinary. But um, he was blown away, and I by his piece, I must say, about GPT-4, because it is, it's producing stuff which is just not just beautiful. I mean, the thing about going back to Ozymandias for a moment, is that there's a phrase in what it said, its rendering rendition of Shelley's poem, um, talking about you can look up at the sea. And of course you can't. You can look down at the sea, you can look across at the sea, but from no place on earth or from anywhere can you look up at the sea. So it meant that's, that was an indication that this was not written by a sentient human being, but by something else. But that would now be improved and he it what am i saying he the machine um would not make that mistake again and the so uh, and i did ask also um mr chat gpt uh <laughs> how simon winchester believes knowledge is transmitted and and i'm quoting chat gpt winchester believes that knowledge is transmitted through a process of collaboration and communication among individuals and across generations. This process involves the sharing of ideas, 
insights and discoveries, as well as the development of new technologies and methodologies that enable the acquisition and dissemination of knowledge. Is that right? Well, it possibly is, but it's telling me more about myself and my thought processes than I ever knew, I suppose. So I'm not going to argue with it, but it hasn't, thank God. I mean, I've written a piece for the um, Washington Post, I think, which is going to appear in a few days' time, uh, with a, if I don't want to be pretentious about this, with a somewhat radical view, which it hasn't heard yet. So I'm going to unveil a secret for it. So at the moment, um, I'm ahead of it. But that won't last for very long. And the funny thing, and I was thinking about your book when I looked you up, of course, on Wikipedia. I know all about you, but we take these media now as truth. And yet when you look um, Simon Winchester's Wikipedia entry up, it's missing the latest book. Well, it doesn't come so, out. So the, the problem with this magical quality of electronic media is we, miss, we, we mistake magic for the truth, don't we, Simon? We certainly do, and that is very much part of the... I mean, I, I recount in this book how I'm writing about, and I think it's either Ted Nelson or Douglas Engelbart. These are people that um, invented... Yeah, I always sometimes think they're the same people, Nelson well, and Engelbart. Engelbart was the one who invented the mouse, and yes, well, he also Nelson was the sort of the, the, the visionary, the prophet of all this. Right, and the, the key thing was not so much the mechanical thing of the mouse, but hypertext being able to click on a word and it then leads you in all sorts of directions. That's magical to use a somewhat overused word now. Um, so I'm type, typing away, writing about how this, what was called the, the mother of all demos, which was in San Francisco where you are, which introduced hypertext to the world. So I then decide I've put in some biographical notes about Engelbart because he's a heroic figure, largely forgotten. And to my astonishment, and I went to uh, Wikipedia, I found he had died, and not just died, but died on the very day, March the 10th, that I was writing about him. This was March the 10th, 2022, last year. And I thought, that's rum, you know, he dies on the day I'm writing about him, golly. Um, and yet there were no obituaries, there was no news, not even in the sort of, I went to Wired and things like this, things that you would, th would have thought would have mentioned his passing. So I tweeted, I said, well, this is very odd. No one's noticed that Doug Engelbach has died today. And then I left it at that. And then when I woke up the next morning, there was an email from a chap in New Zealand who said, he's alive and well. 10 other people died last night, all quote, murdered or assassinated by a hacker we believe is in Melbourne in Australia, who for some weird reason has decided these people all should be put to death. And I, here in New Zealand, because I'm a Wikipedia entry, uh, editor, have now brought them back to life. So, I mean, how chilling is that? It just re reaffirms how cautious one has to be in using Wikipedia. It's not, it's pretty good. I mean, compared to the first year or so of Jimmy Wales's uh, creation of it, um, you didn't trust it at all. Now you do except it slips from time to time. And this is a classic illustration. Well, it slips in an odd way, Simon, because when we're no longer famous or we were never famous in the first place, we're never updated. So we're forgotten about. So <laughs> some people might have one hit book or hit song or, yes. or hit movie, and then they'll, their lives will continue, but they'll die on Wikipedia because no one can be bothered to update them. I mean, it's oh. fine for 
Martin Luther King or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. They're continually updated, but you lose the middle. Um, it's a winner-take-all informational world. Yeah, I mean, let me give you an example. I don't want to be too tedious about this, but I have written one or two books about China, and I'm fascinated by China in when the British and the French and the Germans had bits of it. And there was a bit of it, the town of what was then called Amoy, or Xiamen, on the coast. So this was a British possession on the coast of China until 1941, when the Japanese invaded, and it uh, fell into Japanese hands. And yet a story I was writing in events in China in 1943 show that it clearly was British again. The Japanese had somehow been driven out. You don't see this in the Wikipedia entry. It said it was taken over by the Japanese, and not until you know, the end of World War II, 1945, was it returned to Chinese hands. And try as I might, I cannot correct it. It always goes back. It defaults to something which is incorrect. So this, there are bizarre little islets within uh, Wikipedia which are immune from correctness, and I don't understand why. Simon, what would the wise ancients think about our world? What would Aristotle, of course, when we're thinking about wisdom of antiquity, you write about Aristotle, also Confucius. What, how, how would they make sense or explain what's happened to us moderns in, in terms of our falling in love with this, what you call magic, in terms of the transmission of knowledge? I'm, I'm glad you asked this because this leads me into what I'm thinking about now and, and as it were, sort of the big bang towards the end of the book. Um, the Holy Trinity, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Um, he, Plato particularly, was the, the chap who defined knowledge. What is it? Justified true belief. I believe you are Andrew Keane. I... Um, honestly believe that, that's still not quite good enough. I can point to you and say that's who you are. I say I believe you are. That's better than just arbitrarily saying you are Andrew Keane. But in order to justify that, I have to produce a picture of you and uh, supporting evidence to say that you are Andrew Keane and not a table or a holiday in Spain or a bar of chocolate or whatever. Um, Justified true belief, then, is the, the centerpiece, and it has remained so. I mean, define, despite epistemology becoming an incredibly complex science, what Plato said, what, 2,000, two and a half thousand years ago, still obtains. But the thing about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and if I might throw, throw Herodotus and Pythagoras and Euclid, Euclid into the mix, is that Compared to the brightest people among us today, and let's say, I don't know, Bertrand Russell and Richard Feynman and a whole raft of people. We could add Tim Berners-Lee, who I know is in your book, great physicist yeah, and the inventor of the World Wide Web. The, World Wide Web. the thing about them is that probably their minds, the minds of these ancients, were no better qualitatively than the minds that, you and I have just mentioned Berners Lee and Bernard Lee and Berners Lee and Bertrand Russell and so forth. But the ancients knew so much less because there was so much less to know. They didn't know other languages. Now, Aristotle was the only one of those six, I think, who traveled any distance from, from Athens. Um, there was no very little history for them to know. They didn't know cuneiform they didn't know what was going on in mesopotamia 
probably knew what was going on in Egypt because that was a Greek colony at the time. But the amount of knowledge that was floating around in their brains was relatively little. Compared to that, Lee, Bernard Lee and people like Bertrand Russell had heaps of things to know because we require it of contemporary people to stuff our heads with lots of knowledge. What is the capital of South Dakota? What is the atomic weight of sodium? Who were the principal figures in the Reformation, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment? What these magical inventions of today, and I suppose Google is prime among them, is they remove the need for us to know that. And when one thinks about it, and I hate to be insulting to the people in South Dakota, how important is it that we should know the name of the capital, or indeed the pronunciation of the capital, which is unusual, of Pierre, South Dakota? Um, it's interesting, but how essential it is. Their, their brains were mighty, but essentially, compared to ours, they were tabulae rasa, if that's the plural of tabula rasa. If these new devices strip our brains, cleanse them, as it were, under a tap of running water of all the sticky, unnecessary knowledge, then might our brightest not be able to get to thinking important stuff rather than um, the less important stuff that they are devoted to thinking about. I'm just wondering whether, in other words, and I don't know whether you can factor AI into this equation, but whether all these devices from the calculator onwards aren't actually doing us quite a lot of good. I mean, lab physical labor-saving devices have undeniably made us fat and slothful, and you know, we don't, some of us exercise, but mm. most... We're all like those people in South Dakota, Simon. Indeed, all the... Yes, I don't want to... Put, not that we're against about, South Dakota for no, anyone from South, South Dakota listening or watching. I'm thinking of running for office there. But what about the people in, remember <laughs> Wall-E, that movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, we leave the planet and we float around in suborbital space in sort of large lazy boys being fed nutritious liquid. And yeah, well, I mean, Huxley imagined that 100 years ago. Well, so exactly. It's not a particularly that's... new idea. No, I wonder, no, no, but... Simon, whether something weird is going on. You're right, of course, we can use our... Googles and Wikipedias to look anything up and we can know what the capital of South Dakota is for whatever reasons we want. But at the same time, something weird's going on. You brought up Aristotle and the sort of the and Plato and this ontological sense of the self, which climax, so to speak, with Descartes and the Cartesian notion of the self and of its certainty. But one of the things that's so weird about our digital age of knowledge is we're never sure who anyone is. This latest data leak on Discord suggested that 99% of Russian fake characters are getting through, that they're not caught. So is there something weird going on in this magical world where, on the one hand, we, we can know what the capital of um, South Dakota is, but we have no idea on whether the person we're chatting with on Instagram or TikTok, or Twitter is for real or not? I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it is becoming every day more weird. I mean, is there a war going on in Ukraine? Is any of the news... I, I In this book, I write about, um, about the birth of public relations, which was born, I didn't realise this until I was doing research into it, by... Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays. I'm Fascinating. The Freud, the Freud's uh, nephew, was he? Nephew, I believe he was, who lived in America, and 
and completely manipulated our minds, got us to eat bacon and eggs for breakfast, whereas people prior to the 1920s thought that was a revolting thing to do and that they would eat cornflakes or granola or whatever. Suddenly, under pressure from the the meat packing lobby, particularly the ham packing lo lobby, who hired Mr. Bernays, we, based on entirely spurious research, um, started eating bacon and eggs. Similarly, women smoking. I mean, how about this, that he uh, arranged this stunt during the Easter parade in New York in 1930, I think it was, um, when he got attractive young debutantes to wear long skirts and under the skirts, um, packets of Lucky Strike taped to their thighs. And when they got outside St. Patrick's Cathedral, where they knew there would be a scrum of reporters and photographers, they would undo or part their skirts, reach for a cylinder of tobacco from the Lucky Strike attached to their thighs, place it between their lips and light it and say not, I'm smoking this Lucky Strike just to be annoying to my husband. And of course, the thought was that husbands didn't like women smoking because cigarettes were extensions of their penises, although I don't quite understand that logic, but nonetheless, penis mm. gets into this story. But they're saying, no, we're doing what the Statue of Liberty does. These are torches of freedom, female freedom. They were young suffragettes bent on persuading people that smoking cigarettes was their right as people, not just as women. And it was part of a badge of courage and it was a good thing to do symbolically. And almost overnight, women started smoking freely and happily and such was progress based entirely on the manipulation of the news media of something that was manifestly untrue. Simon, all this brings to mind Marx's book on capitalism does capital in which he treated money as the most mystical thing and that we fetishize money are you suggesting that maybe knowledge is itself fetishized in our modern capitalist age that we've well, lost any mooring with reason and in an odd way you are continuing the work of marx and walter <laughs> benjamin and that whole school of thinking well that's that's sort of aggrandizing me terribly i think but it's undeniably the fetishizing of knowledge, the commodification of knowledge. I mean, one's only got to read the British tabloids, which you're, <laughs> and I have sort of generally escaped from, and the Daily Mail. I mean, look at the Daily Mail, the most popular English language newspaper, digital newspaper in the world, formidably successful, makes heaps of money for the proprietors of the Daily Mail. Truth, very little in it. It's all distorted, all one way or another, we are, our minds are being manipulated as we read it. And the same is true of, of television and uh, the media generally. I mean, the whole idea of newspapers, which after all aren't that old. Uh, I mean, what Gutenberg was 15th century, newspapers early 17th century in Holland, I think. They were generally newspapers of record. They were there initially, of course, to show the arrival times of cargo ships and so forth. Um, and then they became, what was the Times called? It was the Daily Universal Register in London. It registered somewhat neutrally, impartially, in a disinterested fashion, the goings-on of the day. And then slowly, and the celebrated incident, very famous or infamous incident, the Zinoviev letter in 1924, which showed that the manipulation of news by a newspaper could cause 
I mean, complete overhaul of uh, the, the government system, in this case, the end of the um, Labour Party in Britain and the return of uh, Conservatives to number 10 Downing Street, brought about by a complete lie by the manipulation of commodified knowledge. So yes, fetishized and commodified knowledge is a victim of of human misbehavior, yes. I mean, the more I talk, Simon, the less I know what, what I know. In fact, I, I don't know anything about what I know. I wonder whether you're well, suggesting that in our modern magical age of knowledge, knowledge itself has replaced religion. Yeah, uh, the, the Germans used to say that we're living in this disenchanted world. Maybe we're in a post what Nietzsche or Weber called this this world of uh, after religion, but God has been replaced by knowledge, and knowledge being replaced by belief, of course. My right, exactly. So, <laughs> yes, but do remember one wise thing was Karl Popper's remark about. Um, yeah, and you got that at the beginning of the book. The great. Well, I think it's a leitmotif, if you like, of the book that knowledge is finite, but ignorance is infinite. And there's an awful, I mean, it was Plato who said, I know nothing, as you have just said. I feel I know nothing. I'm curious. I want to know. I yearn for the truth. But I'm increasingly, particularly in this technological world, technologically dominated world, I'm uncertain as to what truth is. So a lack of trust, a lack of bearing. I wonder, what do I go back to? Do I go back to God? And I suppose... Many you may have to, or you may have to go back to another final question, Simon. This is a wonderful conversation, as always. You may have to go back to your earlier book, The Professor and the Madman, which was a book about murder, insanity, and the making of the Oxford English Dictionary. How much of all this is bound up in the magical quality of language itself? Or has language remained, and, and this perhaps comes back to chat GPT, but has, has, has language remained immune to the, the magical quality of, of early 21st century life? Not really. I mean, you've only got to look. I mean, I'm still intimately involved with the, with the OED and the third edition will come out in 2037 with fully a million words. The, the, we'll do a show then, Simon. Well, I hope so. If we're both there, the, the professor and the madman, as I've just been a few minutes ago doing the preface to the anniversary edition 25 years the book's still been in print and the dictionary keeps changing and that's the point i wanted to say um for instance when the professor and the madman was published the the verb that was most had the most meanings and senses in the dictionary was set s-e-t you know the sun sets you play a set of tennis this is a t set whatever then it was replaced and it was replaced in about 2005 the word, the verb with the most senses and meanings is run, which is sort of indicates the sort of athleticism, the energy of modern society. But still, imperturbably, the, the noun that has most senses to it and occupies 70 pages of the OED is C, like your previous book that you were talking about, about the Pacific. So the eternalism of the ocean is something one can, I'm glad to say, hold on to. So there are certain immutables. And like uh, who that, I'm trying to remember his name, our great Caribbean writing writer. Derek Walcott. Uh, precisely him. Brilliant. Um, he said, whatever always, the sea will always be doing one thing. It's always 
going mm. on. Always we just actually did a show on the environment and the sea. I wonder, Simon, final, final, whether your next book will be about the environment. It seems to be something you haven't really addressed, but it's the logical next stop in your journey. Well, if I can tell you, it's out and I will know tomorrow, I think, whether I get the contract. I want to do a book. The proposed title is um, The Breath of the Gods, A Natural History of the Wind.